You're listening to the Belfer Center's Office Hours. Watch highlights from this and other Office Hours interviews on YouTube at youtube.com slash belfercenter. Arup sat down with Margaret McMillan, professor of history at the University of Toronto and author of History's People, Personalities and the Past. She is also an affiliate with the Belfer Center's Applied History Project. I want to talk a little bit about history. You're a historian. Uh, you have written so much on history, and you've said you've said history is like fashion. Um, why is that, and what's in vogue right now? Well, it is a bit. Everything's. I think we're. we're uh, affected more by fashion than we'd like to think. I won't say everything is about fashion, but we have things that we're particularly interested in a particular time. And often the sorts of things we ask about the past are things that are preoccupying us in the present. And so women's history, which was not a subject when I was an undergraduate, became a subject partly because the position of women was changing and there was the first wave of the women's movement in the 1960s and 1970s. I think at the moment we're very interested in environmental history because we're beginning to realize the impact of human beings on the environment. We're very interested in the history of previously overlooked or oppressed or marginalized minorities, mm -hmm. and I think this is very important. Um, we're looking at peoples who perhaps haven't been looked at as the subjects of history, uh, transgender people, gay people, and these are people now that we want to know something more about the history of, of, of the, that particular group of people. I think we're looking at cultural history more because I think we're realizing how important it is, the sort of values and tastes and attitudes that people have in a, in a given period and why do they have those attitudes. Mm -hmm. I would say we're still looking at political history and we're still looking at military history because we recognize that changes in politics, political developments, great conflicts do affect our societies and have affected our societies. And I tend to see history as a great big messy house with many different rooms in it, but at least we should be talking to each other from those different rooms. There's some people who say that political history and diplomatic history is in crisis. Do you, do you disagree? No, I don't entirely disagree. I think political history and, and diplomatic history have been too much regarded as a boring. I mean, when I tell people I do diplomatic history, they say, oh, one ambassador talking to another ambassador. And I said, well, no. Sort of dead white man theory. Dead white right? man theory, right? yes. Yeah. And sort of boring documents and you know, or boring you know, negotiations. And I said, well, no, actually, diplomatic history is really international history. It's how organized states relate to each other. And organized states are collections of people and, and express often the wills and, and attitudes of those people. And I think military history is, is often written off as, as being something that's, you know, political and military history is too, too concerned with power. Well, power matters. We know it does. Mm -hmm. And politics and military history are not just about those at the top. They're about those, the ordinary foot soldiers, that are about those who vote in elections, they're about those who make the politics. And what I would like to see in history is, is space for all. But I think... I do fear sometime in, in too many history departments there's been a more and more subdivision of fields. And so people doing a particular type of history don't talk to people doing another type of history. And perhaps courses that are offered on very narrow subjects. And, you know, a lot of students, I think, really want to know about the world in the big picture or about their country in the big picture. How did we get here? Where did we come from? And so I hope that we'll somehow find an equilibrium in the history we're doing today. And I hope we'll somehow answer the need, and I think it's a very important need to try and answer for students to really get something of an understanding of how their own world developed and what fed into that development. Is that the purpose of history? Is the purpose of history to give students a sense of 
how they came to uh, how they came to be or uh, something that led to a certain moment? Or is there is there a greater role of history? I think history can do a number of things, but I think one thing that every educated citizen should know is something of the history of his or her own his or her own country, and then more how that country fits into the world. Because no country is just on its own. People come, move around the world, ideas move around the world, goods move around the world. And so I think to know, I'm Canadian, so I need to know about how Canada developed, but how does Canada fit into a much broader world and how has Canada and that world inter interacted? And so, yes, I think, I think that sort of history is very important for citizenship. But I think history has another set of purposes. One is to try and help us to think critically about the past try and help us to think in an analytical way, try and encourage us to use evidence. I mean, I think there is good history and bad history. And I think, yeah, not just historians, but anyone who studies history should learn how to distinguish the two. Because I think it's important, because our political and, and opinion and other sorts of leaders use history often to justify mm -hmm. what they're doing. You know, they say, you know, history teaches us mm -hmm. this. And if we don't have enough sense of how history works to ask are they right? And to criticize or to, to look critically at what they're doing, then I think we're in trouble. You know, when Serbia, uh, when, when Yugoslavia broke up in the 1990s, all sorts of histories were being pr proposed. I mean, you had a Serbian nationalist history that the Serbs have always been hard done by. You had a Croatian nationalist history. You had a, other sorts of histories, which often led to very real conflicts. And what you wanted then was people to be able to say, no, I'm not going to believe that one. It's just not good history. How do you know when when history is good? I think I could tell if history is good. And it, you know, I don't always get it, but I think I can tell if history is good if I think this person is trying to be fair-minded here. When I pick up a book that says, I am going to prove that this is the case, I think, wait a minute, you know, how do you know? You haven't done the work yet. I want you to take me through the journey, and I want you to be fair-minded, and I want you to take into account there may be alternative explanations. And I don't want you skipping over evidence that doesn't fit in with your thesis. I mean, I guess it's a bit like looking at a well-constructed law case. You know, a good law case will say, this is what I'm out to do. This is what I think matters. This is why I think it matters. Here's my evidence. I mean, we aren't arguing a case in quite the same way in history, but I think the rules are the same. And so what I think of as bad history is people who deny facts that are very well known. You know, people who deny that the Holocaust happened because they say, oh, well, we can't find a single document that Hitler signed saying the Holocaust should, should take place. And that's just bad history because all the evidence is there that Hitler knew exactly what was going on. It's what he'd been talking about or something like it for a large part of his career. He'd been hostile to the Jews. He talked about getting them out of German society, getting them out of European society. And so I think it's always a process. And what I hope is, is that there will be what I think of as good history, history, which is respectful of the sources, respectful, respectful of the evidence, and willing to entertain different points of view. Is, is, there, is there space for something called applied history? Uh, there, are, there are people who think, you know, purists who say, you know, history is, study history for history's sake. And then there are other people who say, no, you know, I think, I think we can learn from the past. Yeah. Uh, what is applied history to you and, and what's, what's its value? Well, I think applied history to me is not saying, oh, look, I've got 10 lessons from the past. Here are the 10 commandments of what to do in the present. I don't think history produces those. In fact, in fact, it's, it's the opposite. History produces so many lessons that it can be used by anyone to justify doing anything. I think what history can do and should do is help us to understand how we got here. And that can often mean studying Roman history because Roman history and Roman law help to shape 
what we are today, but it can mean studying much more contemporary history. I think history can also help us to have a sympathetic understanding, empathy with other people, to recognize that not everyone at all times in the world has felt and thought like we do. And that is quite good for us. I mean, we tend to think what we do is the normal thing. You know, the way we view the world is the normal way to view it. The values we have are the normal values. Well, they're not. And lots of other people have had other values and thought in other ways in the past. And I think what history can also do is for statesmen, for people making decisions, statesmen and stateswomen, I should say, for people making history, it can say, look, just be careful here. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are going to go invade a country called Iraq, you should look at its history and see that it's been rather turbulent, doesn't always like foreigners coming in. You know, a bit of warning. And I think the final thing is just a bit of humility. You know, we're not as clever as we like to think we are. Do you think historians should weigh in in on policy debates more? I mean, that's the sort of sense I'm getting here is that that they have something to offer. I think we do have something to offer. We can help to explain. I mean, look, to start with, we are all made up of, of what's happened to us in our lives. You know, we're not, we're made up of many things, but what has happened to us in our lives, the memories we have help to shape our attitude towards the world. And I think nations and groups of people are just the same. And so I think we can be helpful. You know, if you want to deal with the Russians today, you need to know what it is they're remembering and what it is they're worried about and why they are particularly sensitive to having rather undefensible borders because they have been invaded many times in their history, twice with dreadful effects in the 20th century. So you need to know that. If you're going to deal with the Russians, you need to know that about them. And the Russians need to know about Americans that their history is one which they take great pride in. They were founded on an act of revolution. They think they have values which are important. Understanding each other is really important if we're going to have any way of dealing with each other. And I think history can lead to that understanding. It doesn't excuse everything. It doesn't mean we're going to suddenly like people more or let them have whatever they want, but at least understand where it is they're coming from and, and understand what it is they're remembering and what it is that has shaped them. But do, do, you, do you see there's an, uh, a tension here? Because it feels like, you know, on the one hand, we say, well, History can't. History can be used. I mean, you've written history can be used and abused, yeah. and uh, you can. It's it's malleable. It's open to interpretation. Yeah. There isn't an objective truth. There aren't guarantees of lessons it will teach you. On the other hand, um, history is useful for uh, having a sort of sensibility about yeah. uh, how to deal with a certain country or things. Yeah. It seems to me though that there's a tension there. That if it is malleable, then you wonder. Well, then why do we pay attention to it in the first yeah. place? But I don't think, I wouldn't say history is malleable. I would say that we have to keep an open mind and recognize that we, are, we might look at it from different perspectives. And we're going to ask different questions. It doesn't mean that everything we knew before about, say, the 18th century is wrong. It just means that we're going to ask different sorts of questions. So perhaps when we looked at the 18th century, we looked at political history and we looked at some of the changes that were taking place, such as the Enlightenment. But we didn't ask ourselves, what was it like to be a woman in that world? What was it like to be in the lower classes in that world? What was it like to be a slave in that world? So I don't think that we're changing the past and and making it totally different. I think what we're doing is adding to it. I mean, I see history as something which keeps adding new bits. So you say, oh, I I now know more than I used to know. It's like we we are with our own societies. I mean, you know, we read the daily newspapers and we say, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that about New York. I didn't know that about Boston. I didn't know. And now I know a bit more. It doesn't change my overall view. And I also think in history, we do get agreement on what is the most plausible explanation of the past, which doesn't mean it can't be modified, but we gradually and and sometimes painfully work out an agreement on what the past was like. We we have a fairly good sense now of what the 19th century was like. You know, we'll we'll continue to tinker with it, we'll continue to disagree, 
But I don't think we disagree over some of the fundamentals. We recognize all historians that the Industrial Revolution was a huge thing. We recognize that 19th century imperialism was a huge factor in world politics. Now, we may disagree about how it happened, why it happened, but I don't think history is always changing in that sense. I think we circle around it and our perspectives change. But I think we, we can reach a sort of agreement on what are the important things in the past. And, and that, that is not set in stone, but it doesn't mean that history is always being rewritten and that history is a blank sheet of paper. Well, there's a quote about history that, that, that history uh, uh, rarely or never repeats itself, uh, but often rhymes. It's yeah. something that's attributed to Mark Twain. Yeah. Um, and uh, as somebody who studied so many eras uh, the, the, in, in parts of the world, the British Empire, uh, of course, World War I, uh, and uh, personalities and leaders across history, when you think about the current moment, uh, what era does your mind go to? Oh, when I think about the current moment, it's hard. I mean, I wish it didn't go to 1914, but it does sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a time of transition in the world. The British in 1914 were aware that their power was not quite as great as it had been, although they were still the dominant power in the world with their huge empire and their huge industrial base and their huge navy. But things were shifting a bit, and that was making them uneasy. There were rising powers that were sometimes aggressively pushing for a greater share in the world. And I think we're seeing this a little bit today. The United States' power is no longer as great as it was compared to other nations, even though it's a very, very powerful country and still the most powerful country in the world. And you have a China and an India possibly, and certainly a Russia, which feel that they should be listened to more, paid more attention to. So it's an uneasy time in the world. Now, it doesn't have to lead to war, but it's just one of those times that like 19, the, the era before 1914 is a bit uneasy. Um, I don't think it reminds me of the 1930s, although people would argue this. I mean, there are these worrying populist movements, these anti-immigrants. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's a kind of ethnic nationalism which is highly intolerant and which is based on an us against them. I mean, you look at the messages being put out by Viktor Orban in Hungary, for example, which is, you know, the Hungarian Christian nation. We don't want all these other people here. We, we, we are this type of people and no one else can be, truly be Hungarian. That is, that is alarming. I think democratic institutions, I hope, and that means, of course, everything from liberal, you know, the values to rule of law, I think are stronger than they were in many countries in the 1930s. But there are warning signs, I think, worrying signs. So, yeah, I, I mean, it doesn't. I think history never does repeat itself neatly. But mm. the times you can look back and say this is more like the period before 1914, mm. a little bit like the 1930s, yeah. um, you know. And of course, uh, the UK at that point was uh, in a process of not quite retrenchment in the way that the, the, the United States is debating it, but certainly realizing that its overseas empire was not going to be economically sustainable. Okay. And so in the United States, of course, there are major debates about whether or not the United States needs 700 bases, overseas military yeah. bases, and whether the United States needs to be involved in so many wars uh, around the world. Uh, do you Are you concerned a little bit about that retrenchment of the United States and what might follow? Well, I think I am, because it seems to me that, for some reason, I'm not quite sure why, the world has tended to work rather well when there's been a relatively benevolent hegemon. Now, I say relatively because the hegemon does things for its own sake. But the British did keep the sea lanes free of pirates and made it possible for people to move around the world and goods to move around the world. I mean, they were doing it for themselves, but it actually did help everyone else. They did provide a sort of law and order. And they kept the world... More, you know, it wasn't all in equilibrium, and, and equilibrium, and there, there were 
of course, many colonial wars, which we tend to forget. But they did keep things on a relatively even keel, which meant that a lot of people found their standard of livings going up, found that they were living longer. Um, you know, certainly not perfect self-rule everywhere and democracy everywhere, but, you know, in retrospect, perhaps better than what was going to succeed it. And I think the United States has provided that sort of hegemonic stability. Again, I think very much for its own reasons, and you can find all sorts of flaws in it, and it hasn't always benefited everyone equally. But, you know, when I look back, I mean, I was born just before the end of the Second World War. I think I have been part of one of the most fortunate generations in history. That, of course, depends on where you live. But people living in the West, people living in North America, people living in large parts of, of Asia, parts of Latin America, have really enjoyed tremendous prosperity and stability. And it worries me now how we're going to maintain that. Um, if the United States withdraws, there's no obvious successor to the United yeah, it's States. It's not like the Chinese want to. Right? No. So would it be the Russians who take their place or who would... No, I don't think the Russians have the capacity. I mean, Putin can be a spoiler, and I think Russia can cause trouble, but Russia's got an economic... Yeah, well, disaster is too strong. Yeah. They've got an economy which is weak. They've got a demographic problem. You know, they, they can't populate the mm -hmm. Far East. I mean, they're really worried so, about yeah. all those Chinese to the south of them. Yeah. They can't defend. I mean, Russia's the last of the big 19th century empires not to have folded. I mean, so much of what we think of as Russia was only acquired in the course of the 19th century. I mean, all that territory west of the Urals, most of it is, is new to Russia. And I'm not sure they can defend it. So, no, I don't see Russia yeah. playing a hegemonic role at all. So you would see it more as, uh, I think Ian Clark said that the uh, a sibling concept of, of globalization is, is fragmentation. And it's something yeah. that you've also talked about, how yeah. global the dark side of globalization is also this localization or nativism. Yeah. So maybe that uh, if there is a retrenchment, perhaps... Uh, you would see uh, the, the erosion of uh, sort of uh, international law and, and norms. Is that is that, yeah. that the accurate? I think that's a possibility. What we might see is, is the emergence. We're probably already seeing it of regional hegemons. Mm. So the United States will obviously still be concerned about the nations on its borders. You know, we in Canada are not going to be able to go our own way with a you know free hand if the United States doesn't like it. Yeah. Um, and China as a hegemon in, in 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 much of China, but that will lead to tensions with India. Um, so I think we, we could see that, but there are going to be times when you're going to need some sort of global um, coming together like the concert of Europe. I mean, we've got to deal with global issues still. I mean, they're not going to go away. Climate change, um, infectious diseases, epidemics. I mean, these, these are more likely rather than less. Um, what happens if we get attacks on the internet, the, the, the whole system which links us together, the electronic networks, what happens then? Yeah. How do we deal with nuclear proliferation? I mean, regional hegemons can do so much, but I still see a need for some sort of global coordination or global coming together on certain key issues, and that's where I wonder if we're going to get it. You're a Canadian. Hmm? Now, you've spent a lot of the last 15 years in the UK. Yeah. You were the head of a, um, a the warden of the of an Oxford College of St Anthony's and previously a provost. Um, what do you miss most about Canada, or what did you miss most about Canada when you when you were living in the UK? What's sort of favorite pastime or or, or food or hobby or? Yeah. Well, I think what what Canadians and it's true of Australians as well is when we go to the UK, we miss the space. Yeah. You know, the UK is beautiful, but it's very small, and I miss that. You know, I, I miss the size of Canada. Um, I miss, in Canada, we don't have as much of a class system. Of course, every country has a class system, but we don't have the same sort of class system the British have. You know, we are, I think, a more egalitarian society. Mm -hmm. 
and I like that, and I, I miss that. Um, you still have the Queen. We still have the Queen. Now, I don't. What, can you tell me about that? Because no. I thought Canada was independent, and well, but, but the but the Queen is. Uh... Well, we are independent. I mean, we we, we one of our great contrasts with the United States is we never had a single act where we became independent. We never had an act of rebellion or revolution. We never had a moment which he said we're independent. We move very gradually towards full independence. So we got some self-government even before we became a confederation. And then we became a confederation in 1867, but we were still, our foreign policy was still managed by the British and various other things. And we gradually, bit by bit by bit, and we just kept on doing it bit by bit by bit. And so, so does that mean the American Revolution was a waste? No, it doesn't. It just means you went down a different path and you did it differently. Um, and we are fully independent, but yes, the Queen is, is still our head of state and we still have a governor general. Yeah. I know it's 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 very odd, but that's just because we did it incrementally. Do you think that'll last the the twenty first century? Difficult to tell. I mean, the Australians have a strong Republican movement. I don't think we do as much, and it is possible that when the Queen disappears from the scene, as she's bound to do, you know, she's now in her nineties, um, that Prince Charles will not be as popular in Canada. I don't think he's as popular in the UK either. But whether we'll move then to become a republic, I don't know. It's It might be one of those things we just don't think it's worth making a fuss about. Um, has How has being Canadian affected your research and writing as an historian? It's, I think, been an advantage because I do international history and I often look at um, the origins of or the endings of great sort of moments in the world like the First World War. And if I were German or if I were French or if I were American or if I were British, for example, who were all major players in those events, I, f- I, I would probably be under more pressure to have a point of view, or I'd be feeling I should be apologizing for what my country the did. Pressure to, to defend or pressure to... To explain. Yeah, explain or, or yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, to defend or explain or blame. You know, Although your lineage is from the United Kingdom. Half part, of it. Half of it. Half of it, yes. My, my great-grandfather um, on my mother's side was, was the British Prime Minister during the First World War and at the end of the First World War. But I grew up in Canada, and that didn't mean very much. I mean, he was called David Lloyd George, and I once had a student who said, I didn't know boy George had any children. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, it wasn't something that people in Canada paid much attention to. And and, and do you think that those sort of perspectives of folks outside of, uh, you know, people who had dogs in the fight or access to grind, so to speak, uh, it clouds their judgment? I mean, is this this the idea? It may not cloud their judgment, but it pushes them more to, to take positions, I think. I mean, I don't... Canada unless you belong to some very strange school of historians I don't know, but Canada didn't cause the First World War. You know, as far as I know, it didn't. And it's never been debated. You know, but if I were French, a French historian, I might feel that you know, I should say something about my own country's role in it. I feel no need to do that. I think coming from a small power can sometimes give you a certain detachment and a certain sense of freedom. And there's one last question I have about being Canadian. I, I learned that the donut was a, is, a, is a very important thing to yeah. Canada and Canadians. And uh, living in Cambridge, uh, donuts in, in the Boston area in Massachusetts are also um, very well regarded. I mean, Dunkin' Donuts is yeah. a is a you know uh, a venerated institution yeah. here. Uh, what the what do the Canadians have on on the Bostonians? Well, we have something called Tim Hortons donuts, and we have, I don't know we eat them. I think more more per head than anyone else in the world. Um, Dunkin' Donuts did come 
to Canada, and there was a huge sort of attention in the media. And are they as good as our local homegrown Tim Hortons donuts? This and made headlines. Made headlines, and there were people being interviewed with one in each hand, saying, "I'm not sure that the <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts cooler is as good as the, you know, chocolate covered whatever." Yeah. Um, I don't know why we eat them so much. Yeah. Um, everyone eats. I mean, I I don't actually, but I mean, it's 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 unbelievable, and you yeah. see lineups outside donut really? shops. Oh yeah, come to Toronto sometime. Any Canadian city. Any and people is it maybe has something to do with the cold weather or something. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we're just greedy. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> Addicted to sugar yes. or something. But you may, who knows, Dunkin' Donuts may actually just, you know, in Boston, that may be a sign of Canadian cultural imperialism. Oh, Touche. Yeah. Margaret, thank you so much for, for joining us. Okay. It's been a pleasure. Well, lovely to talk to you. Thanks for your nice questions. Thanks. Office Hours was produced by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. <laughs>